Let's pray together that God would open his word to us. Let's pray. Teach us, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and we will keep it to the end. Give us understanding that we may keep your law and observe it with our whole hearts. Lead us in the path of your commandments, for we delight in it. Turn our eyes from looking at worthless things and give us life in your ways. Confirm to your servants your promise that you may be feared. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's be seated together. And would you turn with me to God's word to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. If you're visiting with us, we've been considering a series together through the book of Philippians, and we've come to Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26 will be our text for this morning, 18 through 26. Uh, But to remind us of the context of what the Apostle Paul is writing to this church, I want to begin our reading at verse 12. So we'll begin our reading at Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, um, but our text will be verses 18 through 26. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice." Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Well, Paul has begun this letter by giving a report to the church about just how well the gospel is doing. Um, He wanted to tell them how things had been going for him, how things were going for him. He'd been talking about the past, he'd been talking about the present, and now he moves to consider his future. And we might think that as the Apostle Paul moves from considering the past and the present to the future, which for him is certainly uncertain, uh, that maybe some of his exuberance, some of his hope, some of his joy would evaporate a little bit as he thought about the uncertainty of his future. But of course, we don't find that at all. In fact, what happens as he thinks about the future, he gets more exuberant, more hopeful, more joyful, 
Um, And so he does something that's maybe a little odd for us as he thinks about the future. He becomes more certain. Um, Maybe you didn't remark at all about the title of the sermon in the bulletin, Future Certainty. Uh, For us, the future is so often uncertain. It so often brings up anxiety, worry about what tomorrow will bring. And it's interesting that the Apostle Paul, in thinking about the future, becomes more joyful, more encouraged, more sure of what's going to happen. Um, And we want to really ask that question, why doesn't his hope and joy evaporate, especially as he's in the middle of a prison cell thinking about the potential for execution coming in the future? Um, How can he be so exuberant? How can he be so joyful? How can he be so certain about what the future holds? Um, We want to think about why he's so certain about the future and think about it in three ways together. He's exuberant about the future because he knows that the future will be grounded in Christ's glory. Uh, That's the first key to understanding how he can be so certain about what's going to happen, that he knows the future will be grounded in Christ's glory. Secondly, he also knows that the future will be whatever it brings, surrounded by Christ's fellowship. That's the second thing that brings him so much certainty, that the future is grounded in Christ's glory, will be surrounded by Christ's fellowship, and will be abounding in Christ's grace. Uh, That's how he can be so exuberant, so joyful about the future, because he knows the future will be grounded in Christ's glory, surrounded by Christ's fellowship, and abounding in Christ's grace. And that's something that we want to see and that we want to hopefully replicate in our own lives as we see Paul teaching us this lesson under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Why is Paul so certain about what the future holds for him? Because he knows that the future is grounded in Christ's glory. Uh, that's the foundation, really, of everything that Paul says in this chapter. Uh, that's, his, that's his point of departure for everything else. That's the centerpiece of where he finds such certainty for the future. Um, Because as he thinks about the future, he's filled with a kind of confidence that we would all love to have, I think, about the future. Um, Just look at verses 18 and 20 and think about all the things he's so certain about, so joyful about. I will rejoice. I know that the help of Christ will come. I know that it will turn out for my deliverance. It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but I will have full courage. Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Right? Those, those are huge. Those are not small statements of confidence. Those are not really qualified. Um, those are sort of unqualified confidence statements. And where does this confidence spring from? Um, it comes from one central certainty that God has given him by his spirit, that Christ will be honored. Everything, everything he says in this passage flows from that certainty. Christ will be honored. Christ will be exalted. Christ will be lifted up. Christ will be glorified with whatever happens to me. That's the guarantee that God's people have in this world. Christ will be glorified in us. And that's the hope that that is the, the foundation for every other hope that springs forth from the Christian. When we think about the Christian life, we can have that certainty. God will be glorified. Christ will be glorified in us. Christ coming into the world was for the purpose of glorifying his Father. Um, he, he helps us to see this in the prayer he prays in John 17. My whole purpose has been to glorify your name. Glorify your name. 
And the Father's purpose is to glorify His Son. And how is the Son glorified? Well, Jesus says in John 17, All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. That Christ's glory is tied to us. His glory is is a product of what he's doing in us in some sense. And so we know that Christ is glorified in his people. That he's glorified in the good things that he does for his people. He's glorified particularly in their deliverance. I mean, that's where Paul's foundation starts as he thinks about his life and he thinks about the circumstances he's facing and he thinks about what future may lie before him, life or death. He can say, no matter what happens, I know that God will glorify himself in me. And that certainty fills me with hope and expectation for the future, that I get to be part of that, right? We usually think as sinners, as good Calvinists, we're a source of embarrassment for God, right? That we wear his name, we carry it around, but we don't really show much of his glory in our lives. And yet he tells us, I'm not ashamed. I'm actually glorified in my people. I'm glorified when I do good for my people. Their good is my glory. That's why to say God will always be glorified in the lives of his people is not some kind of fatalism that that says, well, things will be good for him, but I don't know if they'll be good for us. He says, no, your goodness is tied to my glory. What's good for you is part and parcel to glorifying my name. And so when Paul thinks about that fact, that regardless of what happens to him, God will see to it that Christ is honored, that gives him the hope and the confidence from which everything else springs. And we can read what is said there in light of that truth. Everything he says springs from that reality. So with that in mind, let's hear again what the apostle says. I will rejoice. I have had great reason to rejoice about what has already happened through the gospel, that it's proven to be unstoppable in everything I've done. And I know that that rejoicing will just continue. Why? Because whatever happens to me, God will be glorified. And so I know that this joy is not a kind of joy that will fade. I've taken joy in seeing the way God has glorified himself in the expansion of the gospel. I know that he will continue to glorify himself through me, so I'll rejoice. I'll continue to rejoice because you're praying for me. Right? He, he's rejoicing. He knows God will glorify him. He knows that he will be supported, not because of his great strength. You know, sometimes we look at these statements of Scripture and we say, I wish I could have that kind of confidence that he expresses. I don't think I would be saying these kinds of things if I were the one in prison, maybe facing a beheading in the future. How do you tap into this kind of confidence? How do, you, how do you gin this up in yourself? And Paul's whole point is, I don't gin this up in myself. All of this actually has nothing to do with anything I'm doing. It's all my confidence in what God is doing. Where does this confidence come from? That I have help. I have the help of the Spirit of Christ. That's, that's my assurance in all that I'm struggling with, that I have that kind of help. Um, Paul talks about the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ 
in verse 19. And that, that word for help really is a word that means support. It's used elsewhere of the support a wife should receive from her husband or the support a ligament gives to a joint. Right? If you ever damage a ligament, you know how much that, your, that joint depends on the ligament. Just how much your, it supports what's doing, how necessary it is. And Paul's saying that the help of the Spirit is necessary for me. I don't do any of this in my strength. In fact, he almost talks passively about what will be done to him. God will be glorified in my body. Right? And what has Paul called his body elsewhere? It's a body of death. It's a body that's afflicted with a, a thorn in its side that I've asked the Lord time and time again to remove. The body for Paul is not a symbol of his power. It's a symbol of his weakness. Right? And, and people even criticized him that way, saying, this guy's pretty impressive when you read his letters, and then he shows up, and he's kind of unimpressive. Um, right? His body is not a symbol of strength. When he says, God will be glorified in my body, he's, he's reminding himself of his weakness, how dependent he is on the support of Christ, how dependent he is on the help of the prayers of the saints. Right? Paul is not, mind, not unmindful of how dependent he is on the prayers of the saints. Um, he's recognizing that's where the help of the Lord comes from. That's also how God is glorified. You know, sometimes you talk to people in the church where they say, well, you know, I'm not sure what I have to give to the church. I'm not sure how I can help. It seems like all I can do is pray. And, and we have to kind of change that mentality. <laughs> Prayer is a powerful thing. What does Paul say? It's through the prayers of the saints that the help of the Spirit of Christ has come to me. He, he attaches those two things, right? So that the people of God may know that as you've prayed for me, the help of the Spirit of Christ has come to me to do what I do, to sustain me in the midst of the darkness of my imprisonment, to shed the light of the future glory upon me. So that I can even sit here in my prison cell, Paul says, with eager expectation about the future. That I won't be at all ashamed that whatever comes, I'll be able to face with full courage. And why? Because the Spirit is helping me. The Spirit of Christ is helping me. And that'll be true whether I live or whether I die. Um, that's an amazing amount of confidence to have. Um, it's confidence not rooted in himself. It's confidence that's produced in him by the help of the Holy Spirit through the prayers of the saints that focuses not, him not upon himself, but on what Christ is doing in him. And as he thinks about that, the vista that opens out for him is that whatever happens to me will turn out for my deliverance. No matter what happens to me will turn out for my deliverance. As, as the eye of faith looks looks to Christ and looks to the glory of Christ, Paul sees a future where he's not only going to be grounded in Christ's glory no matter what comes, but he's going to be surrounded by Christ's fellowship no matter what comes. That, that's what is really being opened out in a beautiful way to Paul by the help of the Spirit. What is the Spirit helping him to see? That wherever he turns, Christ is there. Whatever the potentials for his future that are laid out before him at this moment in time, Christ is there. That's what one commentator said. He finds that wherever he looks, he sees Christ. 
whether he looks at a future where he lives and, and gets freedom from his prison cell and is able to go back to his apostolic work and work for the Lord in that sense, or whether the Lord is calling him to be a martyr for the faith. Whether he never gets out of prison, whether he dies in his cell, a martyr for the faith. The eye of faith with the help of the Spirit helps him to look around and say, you know what I see when I look at life or death? I see Jesus either way I look. Those are the options that are laid out before me. And that's what allows him to say that, that one of those statements of faith in the scripture that we probably love the most, right? that, that, that we learn early in our Christian lives to, to, to hope in and to think about and to, to worship God for including such a thing in his word that Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. that by the help of the Spirit, he looks around and sees nothing but fellowship with Christ wherever he looks. Um, to live will be to live for Christ. This is when, I, when I think about my options, life or death, how this could turn out for me, um, to live is a wonderful prospect. To live means living for Christ. It means getting to return to the work that God has given me as an apostle, to be able to go around in the world and to have fruitful labor. Fruitful labor for me, Paul says, is fruitful for the church. It's fruitful for the people that I preach to, that either they might be strengthened in the faith and encouraged by my work, or that they might be brought to faith by the preaching of the gospel, um, that by the power that's given him as an apostle, he can go around healing people, helping people. There's a lot of good work that he can do. And he says, to live is to live for Christ, and it means fruitful labor for me. Labor that will be blessed by the Lord. And so if I think about my options, life or death, to live is to be able to live for Christ. And so that's a wonderful blessing. And then he looks at the other alternative, to die. And he says, you know, death is just gain. To live is to live for Christ, but to die is to depart and be with Christ. To be with Christ. That's a different kind of fellowship. That's a different kind of glory. Um, it, you know, this passage is so familiar to us, it maybe is hard for us to be surprised by it. But when Paul says, you know, there are two futures set before me, one is life and one is death, and I'm hard-pressed which I should choose. You know, we can sometimes be lost it's, it doesn't surprise us the way it maybe should if it was more unfamiliar to us. But if someone put the choice before us, hey, life or death, which would you like? Most of us would say, life, please, and it's not a hard choice. So it's something remarkable that Paul would say, there's two choices before me, two alternatives I see before me, life and death, and one is far better, and it's death. Right? He says there, it's a hard decision because there are two options in front of me and there's no competing between the two. There's one that's far better. Um, we, we can't really do this in English, but in, in the Greek he piles up the, the betters. This is much more better. Now if I said this, boys and girls, or if you did this in your English class, you'd be marked off. But you can do it in Greek and it's a way of continuing to build it up. It's, it's not just better, it's much better. It's much more better. It's far better. It's far better to depart and be with Christ 
Why does Paul say that? Because living for Christ is hard. Living for Christ was hard on the Apostle Paul. It was hard for him as an individual believer, right, to wrestle with the body of death, to have that fight we all have as Christians, to want to live holy lives, to want to live pleasing lives, and to constantly find ourselves doing the things we hate to do. That we, we look back on them and say, what was I thinking? I so want to follow Christ, and then I look at what I do, and I, I don't get it. I keep falling into this trap. And Paul wrestled with that, didn't he? And he got to the point of saying, who's going to rescue me from this body of death? I'm a wretched man. The Christian life is hard for Paul. And it wasn't just the Christian life that was hard for Paul. It was the apostolic life that was hard for Paul. It wasn't just physically hard for him, spiritually hard for him. It was a life of suffering. We think about that remarkable litany of his sufferings that he goes through in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for the churches." Living for Christ was not easy for Paul. Living for Christ was hard physically. It was hard spiritually. It was hard apostolically to live for Christ. And when the eye of faith opens for him the prospect of dying and departing to be with Christ, he says, surely that's better by far. Because I would leave behind all of this physical affliction all of the, the thorn in my side that just won't go away will finally be gone. And the wretched man will be delivered from this body of death. And my apostolic labor will be over. Um, that, that say, I'll be with the one who said to me on the Damascus road, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And I'll see him again. And he'll say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Paul says, of course, that's better by far. It's much more better than the alternative. So you might begin by saying life and death, that's not not a hard choice, that's an easy choice. Life. But when Paul lays it out, then you might say from the other perspective, okay, now it's an easy choice, death. So why does he still say it's a hard choice and he's hard-pressed if one is much more better than the other? He says, I'm hard-pressed because what's better for me is not better for the church. It's better for me to go and to be with Jesus. That's better by far. But it's more necessary for the church that I live for Christ. And that's ultimately where he comes out. 
that's what I should choose. To live with Christ. To live for Christ. Because that will be better by far for the church. And he helps us in this going through and seeing life surrounded by Christ's fellowship. That should help us when we face life and death in this world to be reminded that life is life for Christ. And that's a blessed thing. And that death for the Christian is not something to fear. Because it means departing to be with Christ, which is better by far. Um, Now, this is not Paul having some morbid fascination with death or desiring death for death's sake. But by the eyes of faith, he knows what lies beyond death. means to depart and to be with Christ. You know, modern-day equivalent might be if you're going to go on your dream vacation, but you have to fly out of LAX. You know, if you've ever flown out of LAX, it's a pain. Um, No one looks forward to doing that. But if you're going on your dream vacation, you know, I'm going to have to go through that nightmare, but on the other end is something good. That's what Paul's saying. He's not looking forward to death. He's looking forward to the destination that lies beyond the grave, to be with Christ, which is better by far. But he says it's a hard choice because I know what's good for me is not good for the church. And so even though the choice is up to God, not up to me, I know what I choose. I choose life so that I might live for the church. Even though that's going to mean suffering and labor for me instead of rest and comfort for me. And why does Paul go through all of this? Why does he give us this window into what he's thinking? Better, why does the Holy Spirit give us this window into how Paul thinks? Because he wants us to see how he got where he is. He wants us to show his work. Boys and girls, if you take math classes, often your math teacher wants you to show your work. And why? Well, because you can get the right answer sometimes, but for the wrong reasons. And your math teacher wants to make sure you know how to do the problem, not just the answer you got. Especially if the answers are in the back of the book. Um, They want to know how you got that answer. They want to see your work so they know you know how to work through the problem and get to the right answer. And that's what Paul's doing for the church. He's saying, when faced with life and death, how do you realize that to live is Christ and die is gain and choose the option that's not just good for you but good for the church? He's showing us the mind of the Christian, how we should think through our lives, how we should think through our situation, to look not just what's good for us, but what's good for our brothers and sisters. Because Paul knows that it's fruitful for them if he lives. Harder for him, better for them. And because it's better for them, necessary for them, he knows that he will live and go on. He wants to show us what the mind of a Christian ought to look like. And of course, in doing that, all Paul is really showing us is the mind of Christ. Because Christ was living with the Father in glory, right? Away from any suffering, any affliction, any trouble. And he could have just continued there. And that would have been good for him. But it wouldn't have been good for us. And so what did he do? Paul will keep returning to this theme in the letter. But our Lord Jesus Christ did the thing that would be hard for him that would mean suffering on an order Paul wouldn't even have been able to fathom. 
suffering on an order that none of us can truly fathom, to face and endure the wrath of God against sin, to be consumed by death and body and soul. He did that not because it was needful for him. He did that for us. Because it was necessary for us, he left his rest and his comfort that he might give rest and comfort to his people. And so really all Paul is doing is showing us the mind of Christ, reminding us what kind of savior we have and what kind of people he wants to see. And that's how we should live our lives, not just thinking about what's best for us, but what's best for our brothers and sisters. We might be willing to serve them even at our own expense at times um, so that we might glorify God in what we do. And Paul recognizes that when that happens, then there will be abounding grace in Christ seen to his people. He knows that that will continue and produce great fruit in God's people. And so he says in verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that Christ's grace would abound to his people, not just in Paul and his service for the church, but in the churches being blessed through his ministry. Paul is cognizant of the fact that following the mind of Christ will result in the abounding grace of Christ to them all. We will all grow together, pursuing what glorifies Christ and is, will see the grace at work in his people. He's confident about what this grace will do in the lives of God's people. The grace will abound to them. And how will it abound to them? Well, it will increase their progress in the faith. It will help them progress. We all need that, don't we? To progress in the faith, to grow in grace and a knowledge of Jesus Christ. He knows that if he's allowed by God to continue to live, to continue to teach, to continue to unfold to God's people the truth of Christ Jesus, it will lead to their progress in the faith. That's what Paul knows, that he knows the grace of Christ will abound to them in, in increasing their faith. He also knows it will increase their joy. Right? The more clearly we can see Christ, the more clearly we can understand who he is and who we are before him, the more that will fill us with joy. Remember, Paul, in the midst of all of this suffering, can still find a way to rejoice. He's not rejoicing in the suffering. He's rejoicing in the Lord despite the suffering. The eye of faith is allowing him to look beyond the circumstances of this world and to lift up his eyes and to see Christ. And that's the lesson that Christ taught us in this world. He set that joy before him. And that's what allowed him to endure the cross and despise its shame. That's what Paul's doing. He's looking to the joy that's set before him, and it's allowing him to endure his cross and despise its shame. And that's what he knows continuing to be built up in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ will enable his people to do. Not just progress in faith, but to progress in joy. To rejoice more and more that we are called children of our Father in heaven, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and, and going forward towards that certain future of either life for Christ and fruitful labor for Him, or life with Christ in glory. The progress in joy, progress in the faith, and progress in glory.
that, Christ, that Paul knows by all this work, what will happen? Christ will be glorified. In many ways, we're back to where we began. That was the ground of everything he hoped in, and he knows will be the result of everything he does. That Christ will be glorified. Verse 26, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. His whole foundation is glory, the whole result is glory. Christ will be glorified. And Paul's teaching us this is the kind of life we need to live as Christians. Lives that are grounded in Christ's glory to know that whatever comes, life or death, God will be glorified in us. Not because of us, but sometimes in spite of us, through the help that he gives to us, he will be glorified. And to live with that confidence that wherever we look in our lives, whether life or death, all we see is Jesus and the prospect of fellowship with Jesus. And to know that when we follow him, when we're following his mind and doing the things that are pleasing to him, that will always abound in fruit and in the grace of Christ and ultimately redound to the glory of our Father in heaven. That's the glorious good news that Paul is sharing. To live is Christ, to die is gain. So there's no need to be ashamed, no need to worry, but to be filled with eager hope and anticipation that Christ will be glorified in his people, and we will get to share in that. Praise be to our Lord Jesus Christ, that incomprehensible gift given to us by our Father in heaven. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Paul's confidence. We also thank you that your spirit has given us a window into where that confidence came from. We pray that we would have that same vision for our lives to recognize that to live is to live for Christ, to be able to glorify him in our service to him, and that to die is even gain. But even to depart and be with Christ is better by far, for that's what we ultimately long and hope for, to live with him. And so, Lord, would you hold that prospect always before our eyes, that hope of heaven, and that we would share Paul's joy, that we would share that eager hope that he has for life, no matter what comes, to know that Christ will be glorified in us. Help us to live and even to die in the joy of that confidence. And hear our prayers, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.